Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Jeremiah 18 tonight, but let's turn first to Romans in the New Testament, Romans chapter 9. We are all very familiar with this passage. In Paul's defense of God's absolute sovereignty and God's ability to do anything he wants with what is his, Paul makes a reference to the potter and the clay. And even though he doesn't make a direct quotation from Jeremiah, it's going to be very clear that he has gotten this particular piece of theological thought right from the words of God recorded for us in Jeremiah. Paul starts arguing in Romans 9.15 for the fact that God will have mercy on who he wants to have mercy, and he's going to harden who he wants to harden so that it does not depend on the will of man, but it is God showing mercy that results in salvation. And in making his argument, he knows that at some point someone's going to say, well, how can that be fair? And so his answer is going to be to that question, well, the potter can do whatever he wants with the clay because it's his clay. And that, as I said, is a direct allusion to what we're about to read from Jeremiah 18. So let's start in chapter 9 of the book of Romans, verse 15. We should all be familiar with this language. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires. And he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? So if God, according to his own will, without regard to the will of a person or the running, the activity, the action, the works of a person, if God then determines who he's going to have mercy on and who he's going to harden, the natural human question would be, how is that fair that he hardens people and then judges them for their sin, even though he's the one that hardened them against his own mercy? And so it's a natural question. Why does he then find fault with people 
considering that they were powerless to resist his will. And of course, we have made reference to this many times, and Paul's answer I find absolutely fascinating. Rather than launch into a theological diatribe about God's justice and righteousness, holiness, and his ability to uh, hold people in that hardened state, instead what he says is, well, who are you to answer against God? So in other words, you don't need to understand why God does things the way he does. All you really need to know is that's what he's like and that's what he does. And you just need to come to terms with the fact that that's the only God who exists. So you will say to me, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded, the thing created, will not say to the one who molded him, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has also called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So in answering that theological question of how can God be so sovereign that he gets to have mercy on whoever he chooses to mercy and that he hardens whoever he chooses to harden, the answer from Paul is the potter can do whatever he wants with the clay. Now, Paul did not just invent that Example or that bit of theology, he, knowing the Old Testament, being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, being a Pharisee, he would know Jeremiah 18. So let's turn there. Jeremiah 18 and 19 actually go together. I was thinking about trying to cram them both in tonight, but we will continue with our pattern of one chapter per week so far. But just remember that 18 and 19 go together because next week when we start reading chapter 19, it's going to talk about go and buy a potter's earthenware jar. And it continues the example that we're going to see in chapter 18. Chapter 18 is the beginning of yet another new vision to Jeremiah. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying... Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I shall announce my words to you. In every village in the Middle East, there were potter's houses. There were people whose job it was to make pottery, whether we're talking about little bowls, whether we're talking about jars. And so Jeremiah's instruction is, Go watch the potter as he is creating things on his pottery wheel. So verse 3, 
I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. I don't know if any of you have any experience in working with clay. Uh, I, I gave it a shot back in shop class way back when, and everything that I tried to make ultimately became an ashtray. Uh, it didn't matter. It just, that's what it was. But it's really, really difficult to keep your hand as the wheel is turning and you're molding the thing on the outside and the inside with your hands. It's hard to keep your hand steady. And if your hand moves the wrong way the slightest bit, you've wrecked the thing that you're creating. So that seems to be what happened here. The potter was making something out of clay. And in the midst of it, he wrecked it. He spoiled it in the hand of the potter. So what did the potter do? He took that same clay, piled it back up on the wheel, started over, and made it again, but didn't make it like the original vessel. Made it different than the original thing he was making. Jeremiah is witnessing all this. The vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. So why was he making the first thing? Because he wanted to. And then it didn't work out. He wasn't happy with it. He wrecked it in some way. So he just smashed it all down to clay again and built another vessel, a completely different vessel, because that was also up to him. And we get that. We understand when we watch a craftsman building anything that it's really up to the craftsman to decide what it is he's going to make, how he's going to construct it, how he's going to design it. So verse 5 says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, here's the application of it. God says, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now, that is his example. And he's about to explain that evil people who turn from their evil ways can be forgiven. And that people who God has chosen, once he has instructed them, if they turn evil, he will turn away from the blessings that he has promised them. And so he is literally doing what the potter did. He has taken Israel. He has made them the way he has made them. He has given them promises like the land promise. And then they, becoming evil, he is going to smash them and remake them again, rebuild them again, which is perfectly in league with everything we've been seeing and what we know from all the prophets about God's relationship with Israel, that he punishes them that whole generations suffer under the hand of God's wrath, but that ultimately he's going to remake them, and he's going to remake them in his own image. So the word of the Lord came to me saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment... 
I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot and to pull down and to destroy it. But if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity that I planned to bring on it. That's God's version of, I'll wreck it and make it again the way I want it. Now, by the way, there's a very obvious example of God doing that exact thing. If you think about the story of Jonah going to Nineveh, Jonah was determined that Nineveh should be destroyed. But Nineveh threw Jonah a little curveball, and they actually repented in dust and ashes, and God then did not destroy Nineveh. Now, we know big picture, it was important for God to keep Nineveh intact because it was the capital of Assyria, and he was going to use Assyria in order to punish the northern tribes of Israel. So he sent a prophet there for the purpose of bringing them to repentance. But his promise was he was going to destroy them. Then when they repented and he did not destroy them, you know that Jonah was quite upset about that. I went in there and told them you were going to destroy them. Then you didn't do it. And that's kind of the end of the book of Jonah as God gives Jonah an object lesson. So here is God saying that at one moment I can speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom and say that I'm going to uproot it and pull it down and I'm going to destroy it. But if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity that I plan to bring on it. Or, verse 9, this is on the other hand, or at another moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. And that is exactly what he did with Israel. Brought them out of Egypt, brought them to the promised land, flowing with milk and honey, made them all these promises that he was going to protect them as long as they continued in his way, following his law. He was going to protect them from the wild animals and from their enemies, and he was going to bring rain, and they were going to have plenty of food. But the rest of that statement in verse 10 says, And if it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. So this is the message that he's giving Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is going to go to Israel and say, I know what you're thinking, and you're going to see an example of it in just a moment. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking you're God's people. Nothing bad can happen to you. After all, you're the ones that are in covenant with God. You're the ones that have the priests and the prophets. You have the oracles. And so it's hard for you to imagine that the God who has made you promises and then delivered you into the promised land, it's hard for you to imagine that he is now going to punish you, take you into Babylon, that you're going to become slaves there, that you're going to fall to famine and pestilence and sword. It's difficult for you to think about that, but that's exactly what God is like. He's like a potter, and he can do whatever he wants with what is his, and he's told you how to be. He's given you his law. And you haven't been that way, therefore, he's also going to instruct you. He's also going to correct you. Notice, however, that he starts out with the same lump of clay. He makes it however he wants to make it, but it's that same lump of clay. In Paul's case, he says out of that same lump, he can make vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor, but it's still that same lump. Same thing here. 
If I make promises to a nation, deliver on those promises, tell them to live according to my law, and they don't, I will then remake that lump. But it doesn't change. It's the same lump. It's still Israel. It's still his people. It's still the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's very specific to say that. Can I not, oh, house of Israel, deal with you like the potter does? Because you're like clay in my hand, oh, house of Israel. So remember that God is always dealing with Israel, and the reason that I'm emphasizing that and why it is so important is that I have heard people go after this passage and say, see, this is proof that God's promises are conditional, because he said here that he can make a promise to tear down or root up, and then if that nation turns, repents, does righteousness, that God will then relent concerning the calamity that he was going to bring them. So then they argue, see, it's according to the behavior of the people. God responds to the behavior of the people. Even if he has blessed them, if they behave badly, he will then punish them. He will then curse them. So it is really the behavior of the people that determines the actions of God. But in all of this example, and the same way that Paul utilizes it in Romans 9, it is always about the same people group and his ability to correct them, to instruct them, to bless them, and that is all within the keeping of the original promise that he made with them. The original promise was, the original law was, do it, I'll bless you, don't do it, I'll curse you. So God hasn't changed here. And he hasn't eliminated his own sovereignty here. And God is not waiting around to find out what people do in order to decide whether or not to save them or redeem them or punish them. So I think the people who argue from this text that it is a demonstration of God's determination to adjust his own plans according to the behavior of people, they're really getting too much out of the text. The text is very specific. It's about God and his relationship with Israel and how he is going to respond in their faithfulness to his law or their rejection of his law. Okay, so now you're going to see a demonstration of that. Verse 11. So now then, speak to the men of Judah and speak against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Yahweh the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. And what is the inspiration to do that? What God has just told you, that he being the potter and having said that he's going to bring this punishment on you, He will nevertheless bless you if you turn back, do his law, follow after him. And that is something that God continually holds out in front of Israel. If you will just change your ways, if you will just repent, if you'll just follow after my law, then I'm going to bless you. And that promise is a genuine promise. But look at verse 12, because God also knows the human heart. He knows Israel and he knows what they're going to do. But they will say, it's hopeless. What's the point? For we are going to follow our own plans 
and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his own heart. So God knows what their response is going to be at the same time that he is offering them peace if they will just change their ways. So has God changed his mind? Has God demonstrated that he alters his plans according to the actions of people? No, he's been consistent to his promise of the law. If you follow my law, I will bless you. If you don't, I will punish you. They aren't, so he's punishing them. At the same time, he continues reminding them, look, the law says, the covenant, the agreement between us says that if you will just follow after my law, that I will bless you. And I still will. I will still keep my word. Just do it, even though he knows full well that they won't do it. They're going to say it's hopeless. They're going to follow their own plans, and they're going to act according to the stubbornness of their own evil heart. He knows that about them, and yet he continues to hold out the original terms of the original covenant. Does that all make sense? Mm -hmm. Therefore, thus says Yahweh. Now he's going to compare Israel and their actions to the other nations there in the Middle East, to the Gentiles. Therefore, thus says the Lord, ask now among the goy, among the nations, whoever heard the like of this? I mean, Israel is truly outrageous at this point. The virgin of Israel has done a most appalling thing. All the other nations and their other gods those nations have at least remained faithful to their other gods, even the gods that are not gods, even the idols that they're worshiping, even their temples to their foreign gods. They are consistent in their faithfulness, in their commitment to that god. You might remember Paul being thrown out of Ephesus. And what were the people of Ephesus crying as they drove Paul out? Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Because they were really loyal to their goddess. And he says, and you, you, unlike all those other nations who were loyal to things that aren't even gods, I am God. I'm the God that delivered you. I'm the God that does miracles for you. I'm the God that has demonstrated himself time and time again. And I can't get you to be loyal to me. Whoever heard of such stupidity? Therefore, thus says the Lord, ask now among the nations. Whoever heard the like of this, the virgin of Israel has done a most appalling thing. Now he's going to say, even nature has a consistency built into it. Does the snow of Lebanon, that be the mountains of Lebanon and the snow on top of them, does it forsake the rock of the open country? In other words, the snow melts and creates water that comes down into the rocky areas, and it just keeps happening. It just keeps going. You can count on it. Or is the cold flowing water out of those mountains that comes from a foreign land, is it ever just disappearing? Is it ever just snatched away? No, this happens in cycles because God is in charge of those cycles. So you can count on the faithfulness of the water that comes down from the snow of the mountains of Lebanon. It does not forsake the country that it is flowing into. And yet you forsake me. Even nature is more consistent than you. Snow is more consistent than you. Cold water flowing from the mountain 
and even the foreign nations, the Gentile nations, are more consistent, more faithful than you. Verse 15, for my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless gods, and they have stumbled from their ways, from the ancient paths, from those original paths that God laid out to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, to the law that he gave them. They have stumbled from that. They have turned away from their very founding and the documents of their founding, the covenants, the agreements of their founding. They've turned away from all that, despite the fact that God has demonstrated time and time again that it's good for them, that it's positive for them, and yet they went chasing after gods that are worthless, things that are not gods. They stumbled from their ways, from the ancient paths. To walk in byways, here he's going to compare the byways, which are kind of grassy, thorny, difficult to walk areas, rocky areas, as against the highways, because the highways were at least well-worn, well-walked, open areas where you could actually travel. And God is saying, I have laid out in front of you a clear path. I've given you a highway to travel on, and you have preferred to walk against thorns and against rocks. Why would you do that? They have stumbled from their ways, from the ancient paths to walk in by paths, not on a highway, to make their land a desolation, an object of perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. So this is going to be a land that was once the land of David the land of Solomon, the land that people used to come from afar just to see the splendor of this land. And he's going to turn it into something that people look at, shake their head, and just hiss at. Because it's going to be clear that this has become a cursed land from the very God who led those very people into that very land. Now, if you happen to be a Gentile from another land, and you know the history of the people of Israel, and you know that their God delivered them into their land and made them a great nation, and they somehow blew it? Well, yeah, you're going to shake your head at them and say, what are they thinking? Of course you're going to deride them. I'm going to make their land a place of desolation, an object of perpetual hissing. And everyone who passes by, it's going to be astonished, amazed at it, and just shake his head. Verse 17, like an east wind, I will scatter them. It's the same way that wind would scatter the chaff separated from the wheat. He says, that's what I'm going to do with them. I'm just going to scatter you before the enemy. And worse yet, I will show them my back and not my face, in the day of their calamity. When they come to me, crying to me, I'm not going to listen to them. I'm not going to be facing them. I'm going to turn my back to them. Because they have done this appalling thing, unlike any of the Gentile nations. Even the Gentiles who don't know me are more consistent, more trustworthy, more faithful than my people, who have all the evidence, 
who have the prophets, who have the law, who have the miracles, who have all of the things that I have demonstrated that I am for them, and they have turned away from me. Has anybody ever heard of such a thing? You can see why God's a little outraged. Like an east wind, I will scatter them before their enemy. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their calamity. Now, at verse 18, it's not clear if this is Jeremiah responding on behalf of the people or whether this is God saying, I know what they're saying. But nevertheless, what it is, is Jeremiah is telling the truth. Jeremiah has taken God's word to Israel and said, specifically to Jerusalem, you're going to go into Babylon. You're going to be there 70 years. You're going to be servant there. And God is going to bring you famine and pestilence and sword. And then you're going to go into captivity. And the people don't want to hear that. The people continue to argue that their prophets who are telling them it's all going to be peace. Those are the real prophets. Those are the ones who know what they're talking about. And what do you mean we don't follow the law? We still have priests, and the priests haven't abandoned the law. So we just need to get rid of Jeremiah, because clearly he's the outlayer here. He's the one who's not saying what all the other prophets and priests are saying. So we just need to get rid of him. This gives you some idea of the kind of difficulty that Jeremiah was up against as he was going to his fellow Israelites and telling them the very word of God, which they just refused to hear. Verse 18, then they said, come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah. Surely the law is not going to be lost to the priest. In other words, our priests are continuing in the law. Okay, granted, they might be shaving the edges a little bit, but they're following after the law. So who is God to say that we're not following the law? Go ask one of the priests. The priests will tell you they're doing it. So we just need to get rid of Jeremiah, and then we're going to have a consistency of opinion here because the priests continue to follow the law. Surely the law is not going to be lost on the priest, nor is counsel to the sage. So the soothsayers, the sages, the ones who understand the scripture and explain it, he says, well, well, their counsel is good counsel. They know what they're talking about. And then Jeremiah comes along and says that they're all deceived and they don't know what they're talking about. Well, clearly Jeremiah is the only voice who's saying something contrary. We just need to get rid of Jeremiah. Nor is the divine word lost to the prophets. So when the prophets are telling them what they want to hear, that it's going to go fine with you, it's going to be peace, God is for you, you're still God's people, that's what they want to hear. It's not true, but it's what all the prophets were telling them. Jeremiah, singularly by himself, is the only prophet who's telling them, you're guilty before God. You need to repent. You need to change your ways before God. So they, rather than repent, rather than change, rather than listen to the truth, heap to themselves teachers having itching ears who will tell them what they want to hear because some things just never change. It was true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. Here they are arguing that their prophets, their priests, their sages are the ones that they prefer to listen to. And if you say they don't know what they're talking about, 
Well, then their argument is, surely the law is not going to be lost to the priest, nor counsel to the sage, nor the divine word to the prophet. And since they all are saying things we like and Jeremiah is not, come on and let us strike at Jeremiah with our tongue. Let's just talk evil about him until everybody believes our story of how bad Jeremiah is. And let us give no heed to any of his words. So the group collectively is denying the word of God, which is coming directly to them from Jeremiah because people have always believed there was power in numbers. It's happening still today. Amen. The same way that people are getting together in their governmental structures and voting for things that God says are abominable and saying that it is now legal in our land to do the things that God absolutely denies things that God says, don't ever do that, people get together and they think, well, there's power in numbers and we've all agreed that we're going to do it and let's not listen to the conservative Bible teachers. Let's not listen to the teachers who are actually reading the word of God. Let's go find us some very liberal preachers, some very liberal priests, some, some LGBTQ-friendly churches. Let's go there. Let's find that really man-pleasing message. Let's line up behind that. And then whenever somebody comes along and says, you know, the Bible says that's the wrong way to go, let's just not listen to them. It was true in Jeremiah's day. It's true today because this is how people are. They have a consensus, so they assume that must be right. Right. The consensus is always right. I know in the early years here at GCA, I made the statement a couple of times, wherever you find a plurality in the Bible, wherever you find consensus in the Bible, they're always wrong. Every time, go look it up, check it out, prove me wrong. Wherever you find the majority coming to conclusions in the Bible, they're wrong. And here's another example of it. Jeremiah has been sent by God graciously to warn them to change their ways. And then God will also relent of the thing he's about to do to them. He has evidence of it with the way that he has dealt with Nineveh. And here he's dealing with Israel, his own people. How much more if they return to him, follow after his law, keep his Sabbaths, deny those foreign gods, give up their idols, turn to the worship of God, he will bless them again. They have every good reason to turn back to him. And yet their response is, who are you to tell us that we don't keep the law or that we don't know what we're doing or that our prophets are incorrect? Look, we prefer the guys who tell us that it's all going to be fine between us and God. We prefer our counselors. We prefer our prophets. And as for Jeremiah, let us strike at him with our tongue and let us give no heed to any of his words. Now, I have to force myself to move on because it would be real easy to just go ranting at this point. Because we all know, we know it's true. We see the example all the time that when somebody comes along and says, but this is the word of God, 
that the people of the world and far too many people who profess to be Christian turn to the opinions and the preachers because they have those itching ears and they want to hear somebody tell them how good they are and how God is completely for them and how God bless America, even though God is in the process of turning his back on America right now. And and so it would be real easy for me to just rant at this moment, but I will force myself to move on. Do you get the point, though? Mm -hmm. People have always turned to what they prefer rather than turning to the actual word of God. And when someone teaches the actual word of God, they turn away from that, and then they speak against it, they strike at him with their tongue, and they give no heed to his words. Verse 19. This obviously now is Jeremiah. The rest of this chapter is Jeremiah asking God, saying, look, you know how they're treating me. You know what their plan is. They're out to destroy me. In fact, they've even dug a pit for me. They want to not just shut me up, but they want to throw me into a pit. And so Jeremiah is praying to God to preserve him, to protect him, and then to attack his enemies. Do give heed to me, O Lord, says verse 19, and listen to what my opponents are saying. So listen to me, listen to them. Should good be repaid with evil? Jeremiah is saying the good thing. He's saying the right thing. He's telling them, repent, change, and then God will bless you. And yet he's being repaid with evil. For they have dug a pit for me. Remember how I stood before thee to speak good on their behalf so as to turn away thy wrath from them? You might remember earlier in the book of Jeremiah that apparently Jeremiah was all set to intercede for them and God a couple of times has said, don't intercede for them. Don't pray for them. Don't do that. So Jeremiah is saying, remember me, I'm the one who was on their side. I'm the one who was trying to bring good to them. I was the one who was attempting to intercede for them. Remember how I stood before thee to speak good on their behalf so as to turn away thy wrath from them? Therefore, since I was on their side, since I did stand up for them, since I did try to get them to change, since I did give them the message, since they have decided to go their own way and not give any heed to my words, therefore give their children over to the famine and deliver them up to the power of the sword. And let their wives become childless and widowed. Let their men also be smitten to death their young men struck down by the sword in battle. May an outcry be heard from their houses when thou suddenly bringest raiders upon them. For they have dug a pit to capture me, and they have hidden snares for my feet. Even as Jeremiah is walking through Jerusalem or walking outside the walls, he has to be careful because there are actual snares waiting just to catch him so that they can throw him down into the pit that they have dug for him. They want to destroy him utterly. May an outcry be heard from their houses. 
They've dug a pit to capture me, and they have hidden snares for my feet. And yet thou, O Lord, knowest all their deadly designs against me. So do not forgive their iniquity. Do not blot out their sins from thy sight. And may they be overthrown before thee. Deal with them in the time of your anger. Jeremiah is taking sides with God now. He's saying, remember, I took sides with them. I defended them to you. But now I'm on your side, God. They deserve to be punished. Not only have they turned on you, but it is demonstrated by the fact that they have turned on me. And I've done them nothing but good. I've done them nothing but tell them the way that they can be restored, the way that they can prosper. And they have decided not to listen to me. So do what you said you're going to do. Bring the famine, bring the pestilence, bring the sword. Okay, now this is a very, very bleak moment in the book of Jeremiah. But God in this passage has also promised Israel, if you'll turn to me, if you will follow after me, then I will relent of the way that I am punishing you and I will bless you. And God also knows they're not going to do it. He even said that. They're not going to do it. They're going to follow their stubborn hearts. They're going to go their own way. God knows that. But then God also has this promise that he's made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He has this covenant that he's made with David. So what is God going to do? We know the rest of the book. By the time we get to chapter 31, God is going to promise them, all right then, a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And included in that new covenant is, I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to take out your stony heart. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to write my law on your heart. I'm going to give you the ability to follow after my law, and I am going to bless you. And you're going to be my people forever, the same way that I promised from the beginning. God is going to remain faithful to his word. And even though Israel is incapable of doing the things that God says they need to be doing, that they ought to be doing, even though they're incapable of doing it, God, rather than give up on them, is going to create a change in them so that ultimately they do follow him, so that they do glorify and worship him, so that he can ultimately make them the kingdom that he has always promised them they're going to be. Because whether we're talking about Jeremiah, whether we're talking about any book in the Bible, whether we're talking about any sinner and their relationship with God, the difference maker is always God. It's always God who has to change your heart. It's always God who has to convert you within. And the same way that he has converted and changed you so that he can bless you, so that he can keep his promises that he has made through Christ to you, he's also going to do that to Israel. That's the continuation of the book of Jeremiah. So I really like the drama of the book of Jeremiah, and I really like the hopelessness that God lays out here in the book of Jeremiah, that even as God is saying to them, change your way, I'll bless you. I'll relent of what I'm about to do to you. All you got to do is do better. 
All you got to do is follow after my word. All you got to do is turn back to me again. That's all you got to do. And he says that to them, knowing full well that they won't because they can't. And yet, very faithful God is going to convert them nationally in order to bring about the kingdom that he's been promising ever since Abraham. And that's pretty astounding. That's the grace of God on display in huge historical swaths of time. And that's the God that we worship. That's the God that we believe in. That's the God that we're counting on to save wretches like us. And I keep arguing that if he doesn't do it for Israel, then you can't have any confidence that he's going to do it for you. Because the first people who had the promise that he was going to do it was Israel. And then we got that promise. So I am, I am very confident in the unchanging nature of God that he is going to keep every promise that he's made to Israel the same way that he's going to keep every promise that he has made to us. And he is in the process right now, right now, with Hamas breathing down the neck of Israel. And Israel, I don't know if you saw it, I don't know if you saw Netanyahu today, started yanking out Bible language to describe what's coming in his effort to wipe out Hamas. He compared it to the 10 plagues that came down on Egypt. He started referring to it as a biblical battle. Well, yeah, because it is. To this very day, what is happening in Israel is a continuation of God correcting them, is a continuation of God bringing down their enemies on them, is a continuation of God saying, if you change, I'll keep you in your land. And ultimately, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords is going to come back. His feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives. And then, as Zechariah describes, they're going to look on him and they're going to weep over him like a mother weeps over her only child. National conversion is going to happen to them. And when that happens, God is going to keep every promise that he made to them. He's going to relent and he's going to build the kingdom that has always been promised to them. It's astounding stuff. And you can't understand the big overview of human history if you don't understand your Bible. And that's a lot of why the political wrangling is going on right now about, oh, the Palestinians are right, oh, the Jews are right, oh, the... All that wrangling is because people don't know their Bible. If you knew your Bible, you would know that God is in the process to this very moment of doing everything he said he was going to do. So I'm glad for that consistent a God. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.